the reason people are angry at the thin woman is because they hate fat. Like, yes, of course, we should not be like yelling at skinny people. (laughs) But I think it's really important to hold together like when those jokes get made, they're actually anti-fat jokes. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soulsmith, and I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. And today we are doing another Ask Me Anything episode. Corinne Fay is back on by popular demand, and we're both answering a whole bunch of your questions. It's a real grab bag this month. We talk about writing. We talk about work-life balance. We talk about where we want to go on vacation, favorite podcasts, and a lot about our own personal stories, getting out of diet culture, working through a lot of these toxic messages that we all get around bodies and food and movement. So it's a really good one. And of course, we talk a lot, like weirdly a lot about houseplants and gardening. And Monty Don makes a cameo as well. So I think you'll really enjoy it. Here's me and Corinne, but first a quick break. So this month, Burnt Toast is celebrating one year in the newsletter business. I am so grateful to all of you for reading and listening as I have been figuring out how to do this job, writing weekly essays and producing weekly podcast episodes, and answering your questions about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. This honestly is the best job I ever invented for myself, and I'm just really appreciative that so many of you have been along for the ride. So to say thank you, I'm offering 20% off your paid Burnt Toast subscription. That gets your price down to just $4 a month or $40 for the year, which is your biggest savings. And you'll get full access to the Burnt Toast newsletter, which includes reported essays and my monthly Ask Virginia column. You'll also become a part of the Burnt Toast community with commenting privileges and our super awesome Friday thread discussions. We just did one where everyone was talking about their own stories with diet culture and getting out of diet culture. And I just continually find this community to be such a source of inspiration and advice and really good recipe suggestions. So you definitely want in. You want to come join us. And you also, in doing so, will be supporting independent anti-diet journalism, which, as I've talked about all the time on here, is something we really need right now in diet culture. So thank you for making this a reader-supported space. Go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com slash one-year-sale to learn more. That link is also in your episode description. Again, it's virginiasoulsmith.substack.com slash one-year-sale. Hi, Corinne. Hello. Thanks for being here again. Thanks for having me. All right. We've got a whole big list here we're going to work through. Where do you want to start? All right. The first question is, how did you get started as a writer? So I have written about this, and we can link to one of the early episodes of the podcast where I kind of give this whole story. But I was a English and creative writing major in college. I went to school in New York, so I did a bunch of free internships at magazines. And then my first job out of college was as an editorial assistant at Seventeen Magazine. And that is where I got my start writing. So a lot of get your best bikini body type stories and prom bodies, lots of event-based bodies in the teen magazine world. Yikes. Those good times. I felt great about it. We did also do some really good health reporting. Like, I remember doing a big story about vaginas. A misconception about women's media is that, like, everyone who works there hates women, and it's actually mostly run by feminists who are up against advertising and always caught in that vortex. There was a lot of really good journalism happening there, but all under— 
this umbrella of how do we sell beauty products and clothes to teenage girls. So that is how I got started. From there, I went to another women's magazine. And then in 2005, I went freelance. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Oh, and then the next question is for you. How and why did Corinne start Sell Trade Plus? It is such a unique community and vision. All right, so now we need your origin story. Okay, great. I started Sell Trade Plus in 2018. I started it because I was addicted to looking at other buy sell trade accounts on Instagram and never seeing my size. And I just thought like, oh, if I were going to a used clothing store, I would just go to the section that was my size. So why not just (laughs) make a size-based buy sell trade account? Yeah. And that's kind of how it got started. And then, yeah, I just, you know, really liked the people that I was meeting. And I think it's turned into a bit more of a community. It is a lovely community. You're very good at community building. A lot of people who find my work through you are like, yeah, I hear a lot of Corinne love. Oh, (laughs) people are big fans as well. They should be. And we will also link back to the first time you were on the podcast because you kind of told your whole origin story in detail there too. Yeah. So folks can catch up there. But yeah, it is cool. And you do those weekly discussion posts where people chat about all sorts of different things. It is much more than just the clothes, although the clothes are excellent. It's a fun place to be. Okay, the next question is, can you share a little bit about your own progression from dieting to anti-diet mentality? I think we should both answer this one if you're up for it. Because again, I feel like I've told my story so many times. Like people, it's boring to hear this again, but okay. So as I mentioned, started in women's magazines, wrote a lot of shitty diet stories, very much in the world while also feeling conflicted about it. And rationalizing many of those stories to myself, like, this one's not really a diet. It's just about portion control or, you know, this one's not really a diet. It's eating the way Michael Pollan told you to eat. So that's fine, et cetera, et cetera. And increasingly getting frustrated about that, but not really understanding a different way to think about food. And then the turning point in my story is around the time my first daughter was born and she was born with a rare congenital heart condition that required her to be on a feeding tube. Well, the condition didn't require her to be on the feeding tube, but she experienced really significant medical trauma and totally stopped eating. So she was dependent on a feeding tube. And we spent two years helping her learn to eat again. And so it was like the reverse of dieting in a way. But it was the same thing where I was suddenly aware of grasping for all these external rules, wanting someone to tell me how to do this, how to get eating right for her, and then increasingly realized there were no rules. There was nobody who could fix it. And we had to get her back to a safe place with food by helping her learn to trust her body again. And that started to connect a lot of dots for me about the way I had been eating over the years and not trusting my body and recognizing the way diet culture separates all of us from being able to trust ourselves. And so that was my big, okay, I'm done with this moment. And even that, I mean, it wasn't like one moment. It was a long process. And I can remember when she was around 18 months old saying something shitty about my body and having her repeat it back to me and then thinking like, well, okay, I'm done with that now. (laughs) Like, oh God, this kid has fought too hard to feel safe in her body. Like, I'm not going to be the one to screw it up for her. It's a lot of pressure. (laughs) It is. It is. But it also 
made it so clear. Do you know what I mean? Like, in a way, I sort of hate being like, becoming a mother liberated me from diet culture because it feels like, honestly, sort of a bullshit narrative. And I hate when we credit motherhood with being this mystical thing that it's honestly mostly just like diapers. It's not that glamorous. But it is true that it is often easier to do things for other people than it is to do them for ourselves. And since I had this very clear goal of not wanting to pass this on to her, it was like failure is no longer an option in that sense. Like, I've got to figure this out. So that was very motivating, I guess. Yeah. What about you? I feel like I don't have a good answer, but I'm not a mom. It hasn't always been just like a linear progression for me. Like I've wavered back and forth. I think I also, even from like a younger age, had just kind of like an oppositional personality where like (laughs) I was always just kind of like, screw anyone who's telling me what to do. But I think there was a long time where I just kind of went back and forth between being on one hand, fuck diets or whatever anyone else is telling me to do. And on the other hand, being like the only way I can be happy is by losing weight. I wish I had like a moment that I could say it was when I was just like, I'm done going back and forth here. But I mean, I think eventually it just is exhausting and you're tired of it. Yeah. Yeah. You realize like how much mental energy it takes and physical energy. And it's like other things are more interesting. But I think everyone can relate to it not being linear. I mean, mine wasn't linear. I thought I was fully out of diet culture. And in 2015, I wrote a story about detox diets where I went on a detox diet for a month to write the story. Like, wow. And at the time, I would have been like, no, I'm not dieting anymore. I'm very much out Mm. of diet culture now. It's like, and I reread the article recently and was like, whew, okay. (laughs) I mean, it's very easy to get sucked back in. Yeah, it really is. They're always finding new ways to to get you. Mm -hmm. They're very good at that. I understand why this person asked that question because getting to the anti-diet mentality feels like a goal. Yeah. And it is because there's obviously a lot of benefits that come with it. Like you are not obsessing about food and beating yourself up when you eat. And that's really lovely. But I also am almost wary of framing it as like a goal to work towards because that can be a sort of parallel dieting experience. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's a good point. I don't think it feels like you ever get to a point where you're just like, oh, and now I'm at peace forever. You know, like I still am sometimes like, oh, I don't want to deal with like airplane seats or whatever. It's maybe more like getting to a place where you can more quickly mm-hmm. recognize the pattern of like, oh, I am responding to this larger cultural situation. It's not my right. fault. Like that, being able to place the blame where it belongs is in some yeah. ways more the goal. That's a good point. If we're going to talk about it as a goal. All right. So the next question is, is there a balance between slamming the thin ideal but inadvertently slamming less fat, slenderish, petite body people as crappy? Hmm. This is a very interesting question. And it does remind me of the column we did, I think, back in March. The question was, what if I just don't want to be fat? I think there's often something that comes up with less fat, slenderish, petite bodied people (laughs) when they start to hear us pushing back against the thin ideal and they take it really personally. 
I've interviewed lots of women in thin bodies who talk about the constant shaming they get for being thin, that people will say to a thin woman, like, I hate you, you're so skinny, or how can you eat whatever you want and never gain weight? Oh my God, I'm so angry. You know, like, they get a lot of hostility for their thinness, but the hostility is rooted in anti-fat bias. The reason people are angry at the thin woman is because they hate fat. Like, yes, of course, we should not be like yelling at skinny people. (laughs) But I think it's really important to hold together like when those jokes get made, they're actually anti-fat jokes. They're not anti-thin jokes. So in terms of finding this balance, I mean, yeah, like personal attacks help nobody, but it is fine to be critical of the thin ideal that is oppressive to all of us and particularly oppressive to people in larger bodies. And in doing that, you are not causing harm to thin people. I do think that makes sense. All right. The next question, is there a balance of accepting nutrition or GI research as beneficial and informative and slamming probiotic supplements, foods, and quick convenience powders, etc.? So this was part two of the previous question. The same person sent in both. So just to offer that framing. Okay. So I would flip this. And I would say that as it currently stands, nutritional research is not terribly beneficial or informative because it tends to be very poorly done. Most nutrition studies rely on people self-reporting. People are really bad at self-reporting what they ate. A lot of nutritional research will do stuff like study what broccoli does if we feed it in huge quantities to a rat, and you're not a rat who eats huge quantities of broccoli. So The fact that it prevented cancer in that rat is not applicable to your life. There is a lot about nutritional science that is useful to nutrition scientists, I guess, but is not yet useful to the way we all eat and yet gets reported on and marketed and communicated to the public as if we should be living by these lessons. It gets turned into best-selling diet books. That is, you know, when you look at the source material, it's like this was a study on 30 people and, you know, we didn't follow them very long and we didn't ask them the right questions and it was only men or something like that. There's all these limitations to the research. So I think that it's really good to be critical and curious about nutritional science and realize that it often doesn't have a big place in your life. And at the same time, I'm much more forgiving of people finding a quick convenience protein powder is an efficient way to have breakfast in the morning. In my house, we have protein powder and smoothies every morning because my kids are both cautious eaters and they like it. And it's a useful way of making sure they get like a good amount of energy for the day if they want to otherwise live on, you know, carpet lint and Tic Tacs or whatever. (laughs) I will also certainly be critical of the marketing hype that these products come with. Like I don't love when they're claiming to be superfoods or everyone's heard my rant on athletic greens. But if you're like, these cliff bars are so helpful to keep in my bag because I work an eight-hour shift and I don't get a lunch break and I can eat one and not starve, like, that's great. When I say let's not shame foods, I mean all of the foods. We don't have to shame any of the foods. But you don't have to buy into the hype around these foods and you don't have to buy into the claim that they should replace other foods in your diet or anything like that. Yeah, that seems like a good distinction. Okay, the next one is a parenting question. How do you deal with judgment from healthcare providers who disagree with choices you make, i.e. breastfeeding past one year, not doing cry it out, 
So not harmful choices, but choices that may fall outside the mainstream. I almost didn't answer this question because I did not breastfeed past five months, and I definitely did cry it out. So (laughs) I'm not judging your choices, but I am someone who can kind of only offer the other side of it. But of course, if you only breastfeed your baby for four to five months, you're going to get judgment for not doing it long enough. So I do know what you mean in terms of like you're making a choice that's different from what the sort of quote gold standard advice is about parenting. I think it's so hard with your first um, because you don't have your own confidence yet and you don't know what the hell you're doing. And so it's very easy to just feel super unnerved by it. I think it's something that just comes with time. Like the more you parent your own kids and you see what works for them, you feel more comfortable saying that best practice doesn't actually apply to our life in any way. You know, where I do certainly relate is like the advice on, you know, kids below two should have zero added sugar. I mean, what? It's not useful. It's not realistic. If your kids are eating food at daycare, if they have an older sibling who gets given a cupcake, like you're, of course, going to let your toddler or your baby have some sugar and it's fine and they're going to be great and suffer no consequences from it. So, you know, certainly around nutrition is a piece where I find myself often making the, quote, unpopular decision with a healthcare provider. Yeah, and I think it just comes with sort of learning that what works for you is what works for you. And, you know, we can link to the episode Sarah Louise Peterson and I did on gentle parenting. I think we went a lot deeper into this. Like, it's not just healthcare providers. It's also social media and mom friends and mom groups on Facebook that can get, like, really weird and dogmatic fast and all those places where— they tend to present parenting in a binary state that you're either doing it right or you're doing it wrong. And anyone who's actually spent any time with a kid learns that like you're kind of always doing it a little bit wrong, but it's fine. <laughs> and that's the best we can do on any given oh. day. Oh man. <laughs> do not envy parents. <laughs> it's real fun to be doing something that, you know, requires you to be regularly sleep deprived and hungry at odd hours. You're hour. always slightly failing. Yeah, I do have one quick story I can tell about okay. this. So my four-year-old has been homesick like every week for the past month with some nonsense because ever since we took masks out of schools, the kids are getting all of the diseases they didn't get for the last two years. And last week she was home for like two days straight. And it was like the third week in a row like that with this really bad cough not COVID. We've tested, we've tested. It's not COVID. And by the end of the third day, I was like, we got to get out of the house. We got to go do something. It's a beautiful day. She's been watching TV for three days straight because Dan and I have to work and she's here. So we pick up her older sister. We go to get ice cream. We're down by the river. It's a beautiful afternoon. I'm like feeling so successful. Like I got both kids out. We're getting ice cream. How lovely. She inhales her ice cream, spills it all the way down her and then gets a coughing fit and throws up her ice cream <laughs> all over herself, <laughs> the park bench, <laughs> multiple other services. Oh and I God. was just like, why do I try? <laughs> oh, God. Why? Wow. There was literally an older woman on the next park bench turning her head to the side, literally like, I can't look at you. I can't look at you. This is so revolting. And then like another mom from school and her kids were a little further down. And like, here's my kid, like starting to like dad. And she's like, do you need help? And I'm just like, 
I mean, what help can you even offer? Oh, my gosh. And so there's, like, quite an audience for this whole experience. All I can say, the parenting win there is that I had remembered to bring baby wipes. I was so fucking proud of myself because we're past the stage where we need baby wipes all the time, so I don't always think to have them. But I went through, like, a pile of baby wipes, got a bottle of water, like, cleaning puke off the sidewalk and off this park bench. <laughs> And wow. then, like, I want to get her back in the car, but I don't want her to puke again, right? So I'm like, okay, guys, why don't you just play while we make sure she's done puking? And, like, other people are clearly like, why are you still here? I'm like, oh, oh, my gosh. Yeah. So there was I'm a lot so of judgment. Sorry. It was fine. It was fine. I'm, like, rage testing Dan while I'm cleaning puke off his carpet. <laughs> All wow. I'm saying is once you've survived your first, or I mean, it's not even my first. It's probably like my dozenth public vomiting. It's like, whatever. They can think what they want. Unless you're the one here cleaning the puke off the park bench, you don't get to judge. Oh, my gosh. That's wild. I'm sorry for that disgusting story. We can move on. No, I love it. <laughs> well, I, this is also kind of a tangent. But one question I have is, where does that advice about not giving kids sugar before two years come from? Oh, I think it's the American Heart Association. Is that based on facts? <sighs> we should do a deep dive on Or is this where that. we're like, take nutritional yeah. studies with a grain of salt? I think it's definitely that. My guess, and I would have to look into the source material on this, but based on where some of these other guidelines have come from, my guess is they're doing something like they're taking a large scale study and they're finding a small correlation of like these kids who ate less sugar had lower rates of x y and z health conditions later on and so it's correlation not causation right because you right. cannot prove a negative right you can't prove that not right. eating sugar prevented it all you can say is like some households feed their kids more sugar than others and those households correlate to these other conditions but what else might be contributing to that right like if you are a low-income family and McDonald's is a really reasonable way for you to get calories in your kid, your kid's consuming more sugar than the Whole Foods mom's kid is consuming. Yeah. You know, the other thing that research doesn't tell us is the harm caused by restricting the sugar. Mm. So it may be that you could even prove a causal link between kids who eat less sugar and future heart disease risk or type 2 diabetes risk, but you may also be able to prove a causal link between kids who eat less sugar and kids who have eating disorders. And if I'm worrying about my kids' future mortality, kids are more likely to die of eating disorders than they are of heart disease. So, wow. you know, if we're really going to get serious about that, we have to consider all aspects of it. And even yeah. if it doesn't go that far, you know, being restrictive around sugar leads to kids who fixate on sugar. We see this over and over, and we've seen this in experimental studies that are really well done. So we know that that is just not practical advice for parents. Well, yep. too bad it's not practical because it's everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yep, they're still going to make you feel bad about not doing it. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our favorite topic. What's your favorite houseplant and how do you keep it alive? I mean, I cannot pick a favorite houseplant, people. This is really hard. Um, okay, do you have a least favorite? Oh, that's a good question. Because I have a least favorite. Wait, let me think. Okay, what's your least favorite? Because I'm thinking. Is it like mother of thousands? It's the one oh. that like makes a million tiny yes. babies and I hate it. I literally just threw it away because I was like, <laughs> I can't. <laughs> 
too prolific. It is very prolific. I have one of those that my stepdad actually brought back from a trip. And my mother was like, please take (laughs) take this thing out of my house. Because they can get like really tall too. They're like quite enormous. I was just like, it's too, it's messy. Like, yes. I don't want to be just throwing away all these little things all the time. Yeah, but you actually don't need thousands of that one plant. No, I don't. I don't even want one. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree. That is not a favorite. Although mine is, I have it in a very small pot, so I think I'm like containing Mm. it a little bit. So one plant that I am frustrated by because I love but I'm having trouble with is my string of bananas. I'm doing really well with a string of pearls. But string of bananas is like similar to string of pearls, but instead of little pearls, they're shaped like little bananas. And yeah, I mean, they're just so finicky. If you overwater them, they don't like it, but they do want some Mm -hmm. water. And so we're kind of in a little love-hate relationship where I'm like, I really like you, but you don't seem happy here. Is it me? You know, we're trying to work it out. But one of my favorite houseplants is my polka dot leaf begonia, which I posted a picture. We can put that in the show notes. Yeah, she's just really lovely and also a little high maintenance. But, like, I get it. You're very pretty. You know, it's, you're loud. And I've got her in a good spot, and she's doing well. But, yeah, they're really— that Sounds really cool. Yeah. Any of the fancy leaf begonias are pretty cool if you, like, have the right conditions for them. Do you have a fiddly fig? Oh, God, no. I've killed two, if okay. not three, fiddly figs. I killed one, and I was like, that's enough. Yeah, because they're expensive if you buy a big one, and then you're like, well, yeah. that's $80 or whatever. And yeah, I have a tiny, tiny one. I think mm-hmm. it's actually a banyan fig, which is sort of related to the fiddly fig. It's in the little six-inch pot. It has three leaves, and it's not dead, and that's like the best we can do. <laughs> And I'm like, maybe someday you'll aspire to be one of these big figs. But no, I don't think I have the right conditions in my house for a fiddle leaf fig because we only have one south-facing room. I do have a sunroom that faces south, but I don't have space in there to get another giant plant in. And I don't know. Figs are so hard. They're the hardest. Yeah. They seem like they're always just slowly dying. Yeah, and they look so gorgeous when they're working, and then they'll just, like, drop all their leaves, and then they're just a stick. I had one that was just a stick for, like, a year. I kept hoping it would come back. Yeah, it's not worth it. And I feel like if you like a big leaf plant like that, which, like, of course, I love big leaf plants, like, you can do a Monstera. That'll get just as giant for you. I have a Diffenbachia. I think it's a dumb cane plant. That's got pretty big leaves. An elephant's ear. Elephant ears can be a little finicky in the winter, but they're worth it. So there's other options. You don't have to fall for the fiddle leaf fig is what I'm saying. All right. The next question is, what does work-life balance look like for you right now? And what do you wish was different? I was thinking about this because last month there was a question about like how I get time for myself. And I realized I forgot to share in that question. One of the main things I do is that I wake up really early. The rest of my family sleeps till like 7.30 and I get up at 5 and I have time to myself then. And I realized the reason I did not offer that as a tip last month, because in terms of like, oh, enjoyable time to myself, like time to like do yoga or read a book or whatever, which it sometimes is, is because when my work-life balance is not great, I get up at five and I work before my kids are awake for two hours. And since I'm finishing my book right now, that's a lot of my early morning time is working. 
So something I wish was different is when I'm done writing this book, I will get that chunk of morning time back. And then I really like to go out in the summer, go out and be in the garden during that time or read or just like not be talked to by my family. I come from a family of like, I love my family very much. I am the only member of my family who doesn't work weekends. And it's a really big accomplishment of me to be like breaking the generations of workaholism in that sense. You know, my sister is an urban education high school teacher. It's really hard not to work nights and weekends with that job. My dad and my stepmom are college professors. Like there's just working on weekends is what I grew up with. And I totally get it. And I didn't want it. So I'm very proud that I don't work weekends for the most part. What about you? You're kind of going through a big transition right now. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah. I don't know what my work-life balance is going to look like. I just left my sort of main full-time job and I'm (coughs) focusing some time and energy on Cell Trade Plus and Burnt Toast and some other freelancey things. Yeah, but I'm very much figuring it out and I'm trying to have a little break time where I'm just spending less time on my phone, hopefully. (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to figure it out. Yeah, because you have been working, as I know, because you often do the burnt toast work on the weekends. Yes. You have been doing a lot. For a long time, my schedule was do sell trade plus before work, go to work for eight hours, do sell trade plus after work, do burnt toast on the weekends. So just trying to shift that a little bit. I think we all want you to have more downtime. (laughs) Yeah. Really a big fan of changing that. This past week has been my first week without going into my job, and I have felt really weird. <laughs> Just, it's really weird not having, like, coworkers. But, yeah, I'm sure I'll adjust. It's exciting, though. Yeah. It is weird not Thank having you. coworkers. When Dan used to go into the city more for his work, like, there could be days where I'm like, I didn't talk to a single person. I just, yeah, in my house. And yeah. th- that is an odd experience. It's also sort of lovely at times. I don't yes. Know. Yeah, I can see both sides of it, for sure. Yeah. All right, this is kind of a follow-up question, but could you talk about finding time to write with young children, especially making mental space for it? Young children being under four. Yeah. Well, so as I said, getting up at five in the morning, I realize it's like the least sexy advice ever. And if you are not a morning person, like something about having kids broke me and made me a morning person. And I also go to bed at like... 8.30 at night now. Like, I just became my mother immediately when I had kids and got on the schedule. And now I'm like, she was a genius for always doing this. It really is nice to have time to yourself in the morning. So the early morning thing is one strategy. Obviously, if you were wired differently, you could make it a nighttime writing time. I know lots of folks who do that. Like once the kids go to bed, that's when they get time. I'm assuming with this question, this is not your full-time job because I do want to acknowledge the privilege of I was already a full-time professional writer before my children came on the scene. So I was making a full-time income from it. So therefore it had to continue because (laughs) it is bringing in 50% of my household income. So we've had daycare or a nanny or now they're in school. We've had childcare built into our lives from the time they were really little because it was necessary for both of us to work. So I just want to acknowledge that privilege. Of course, COVID made that very different because when they were home all the time and like when I'm in a big project like the book, there is more spillover where, you know, I'm thinking about it more. 
I am getting an hour of writing time done before they get up. The hardest point for me is the days I pick them up from school and have them in the late afternoons because young children are terrible in the late afternoons. Like they're really grumpy and need snacks. And that's why the ice cream seemed like such a good idea at the time. (laughs) before it ended in puke. And my brain is still really in my work at that point. Like I don't have a transition. And this is where I can understand having a commute must be nice because you have like 30 minutes in the car to like transition out. And so often I'm parenting and still looking at my phone to check work emails or not think of something and want to make notes. And it's really hard having half attention for both. So I think big picture my advice is Whenever you can, even if it's not a lot of time, carve out whatever time you can separate and protect that ruthlessly as your writing time. Even if it's a couple hours a week, you can get a babysitter or whatever. And don't try to do the like half in both worlds thing, because I think that's where the burnout really comes. The next question is recommendations for a new homeowner to learn about gardening. Well, this is a fun one. This came from Instagram because I've been sharing incessant garden pictures because This is the best time of year for my garden, so you're just going to see it constantly at the moment. So if you are on the East Coast and you want to be a gardener, my number one tip is the blog awaytogarden.com by Margaret Roach. She gardens here in the Hudson Valley. She was a garden editor for Martha Stewart a long time ago and has the most exquisite garden in the world. She's a genius. She has a wonderful podcast. She knows just everything about everything. And the website is like a treasure trove of like what kind of mulch to get like how to use mulch like how to start seeds like you know how to think about design all of these different things so that would be my first stop and I think it's probably useful even for people in other gardening zones like the specific plants obviously change if you're you know in the southwest like Corinne or you know on the west coast but a lot of the principles is the same and otherwise what I did with our second house that was more useful was I did spend some time making a master plan of all the different little areas and like this is where eventually a fire pit might go and this is where a shade garden could go or whatever and then like just tackle one of those projects per year instead of trying to do it all at once. And so we're like now five years into what is probably like a 10-year list of projects, but I'm, I'm more realistic about what we can get done. And the other number one tip I will give you actually is... If you are a new homeowner right now and this is your first season in your house, don't do much this year because you haven't lived there through a whole growing season and you don't even know what you have, where the light is, what your soil is like. So even though you want to get going and there's like stuff you know you want to change, like just take a break, you know, get some containers and pot some stuff up and put it on your porch instead because doing too much before you really understand your property, I think can lead to wasting money and effort. What about you? You're like starting to work on a garden now, right, Corinne? Yeah, I have lived in my house for a couple years and that advice is definitely good. There's still stuff I'm like, oh, there's irises planted here, which makes no sense because they're getting no water. Um, (laughs) But yeah, my backyard is like someone definitely put a lot of like time and thought and care into it. So we'll see. I'm hopefully going to start doing some more work I'm very envious of your raised beds, and I'm also curious if you've ever watched any Monty Don. Oh my god, I could talk about Monty. We could do it. <laughs> okay, a whole Monty Don fan episode. Okay, great. Because I was gonna recommend Big Room Small Spaces or 
yes. Gardner's World. Gardner's but, World, for sure. Yeah. I kind of can't believe I didn't start there. Yeah. He was my, like, COVID survival. Oh, my God. My older daughter and I would watch it together in the evenings and make lots of plans. Oh, I love it so much. Um, it's so soothing. It's so soothing. <laughs> I love, also less relevant for the Southwest, but still just great. I know. Watch. I'm like interested that you like it because you're grinding in such a different climate. I mean, I'm always like, maybe they'll do an episode of In the Desert. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, I just think Monty Don is like so lovely. Yes. And his dogs are so lovely. Yes. He has great style, I feel like. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, you know, my mom is British. So I, oh, yeah. the reason I'm a gardener is because of my British DNA. Like, mm. everyone in England gardens, pretty much. I mean, there's a gardening celebrity, clearly. There's that's... literally one of their number one celebrities is a gardener. My grandfather was a really intensive gardener. My aunt, both my cousins garden. Like, it's like a big part of our family. And yes, he is like the epitome of British gardening style. And it makes me so happy. Like he's always in like a little cardigan and like yeah. the Wellington boots. And it's just delightful. Yeah. Yeah. Everything about it is so good. And there's tons of really practical advice. Yes. Yeah. And tons of episodes if you just need something to like watch for hours I mean, and hours. Yeah. You're, they've been making that show for like a hundred years. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> yes. Yeah, definitely recommend a Monty Don deep dive. Okay, here's another fun one. What is your dream vacation? This is hard because, like, since we've been travel starved for so long and we're just getting back to travel, I feel like I have such a long list. So, okay, a dream vacation that I am waiting until my children are older to take is I really want to do a very, like, foodie trip in Italy. I did a trip like that when I was in my 20s, and it was amazing. And it's a kind of trip I want to recreate with my kids, but I want them to be more fun to eat with first. Because right now, going out to restaurants is still hard with my four-year-old. So. And the fact that, like, yeah. you know, Italians eat dinner at, like, 10 o'clock at night. Like, all of that would be tricky right now. So we'll get there. That's a big one. I also have never been to Greece, and that's been, like, on my list forever. What about you? I mean, I would love to go to Italy and Greece. The one that comes to mind for me, which is, like kind of a never gonna happen one I think but have you heard of Amangiri? No. What is that? Uh, it's like a crazy resort in I think it's in Utah and it just it's like it looks very beautiful like it's just like this kind of stark. I'm googling. It just looks beautiful and like oh, okay. incredibly serene. I feel like celebrities always go there. Ooh. <laughs> I know one time I tried to guess how much it was and I was like maybe like $500 a night? Like, thinking that was, like, wild. And I think it's, like... No, I think it's, it's more so than that. so much more than that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on their website now. I can confirm it's definitely going to be more than it $500. Awesome, right? It just seems fun to go there and, like, turn off your phone for a week. Yeah. And I think it's also on, like, an incredibly large, like, hundreds of acres property where you can, like, hike around and stuff. Oh, my gosh. This looks beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, this is a good fantasy one. Um, speaking yeah. of like completely over the top hotel fantasies, I'm so mad at Highlights Magazine for this. Highlights Magazine had an article that was like, cool hotels, which like, what? why? For kids? <laughs> yes. That makes no sense. It was like supposed to be like hotels that would be like very kid friendly. And so there was like a Disney uh -huh. one, which whatever. But then there was one in, I want to say, I think it was in Bali. And it's Whoa. literally under the ocean. So, like, a, the bedroom is, like, a giant 
aquarium, basically. I will find it and link it. That sounds incredible. And it's $10,000 a night. And now your daughter's like, please, for my birthday. (laughs) And I couldn't stop laughing. And she was like, is that a lot of money? Like, you know, she's a kid. She doesn't get money. She's like, what are you saying? Are you saying we don't have $10,000? I'm like, we're not going to spend it on that. Yeah. That's very reasonable. Okay, what about favorite podcasts? I feel like we have to give the maintenance phase shout out. Obviously, if you're looking for anti-diet content and you're listening to us and not maintenance phase, you did that backwards (laughs) because you should have started there. They do excellent work, Aubrey Gordon and Michael Hobbs. And so that's a big one that I never miss. I'm also really into Everything is Fine with Kim France and Jen Romolini. It is a podcast for women over 40, which I admit, just hearing that tagline, I was like, fine, put us in a box, okay. But it's, like, so good. They're both former women's magazine people. Kim France was the editor-in-chief of Lucky Magazine during, like, Condé Nast's, like, big, you know, like, town car heyday years. And they're very funny and smart, and they did a great episode on Roe. They have really interesting authors on, and the, like, the chit-chat between the two of them is really good. It's a great listen. And not just for women over 40. I feel like anyone could enjoy it. What about you? I'm really into this astrology podcast, Ghost of a Podcast. Ghost of Um, a Podcast. Okay. Yeah. So if you're into the woo side of things, I recommend that. I also love Reply All, which I know is very popular. I'm sure everyone's listening to that. That's a good one. Yeah. Those are probably my two biggest ones. Okay, the last question is, what's the most destructive health or diet culture message you've received? I think one message that has taken me personally the longest time to work through was the message that exercise is only for weight management. So when I was a kid, I was a skinny kid, and I hated sports and hated moving my body, basically. Like, I was an indoor cat, for sure. I just wanted to read and play pretend and not be physical. And it was fine because I was skinny, right? But that meant that then when I was no longer skinny, I felt like this obligation to exercise to get back to my thinness, which did not work. And so I had a pretty disordered relationship with exercise in my 20s. No one ever said, like, maybe you would love moving your body for other reasons, right? Like, there was no option on the table to, like, enjoy exercise or, you know, just joyful movement, whatever you want to call it, like on its own terms or for its own pleasures. And so it has taken me like most of my 30s to really get to a place where I do notice implicit benefits to exercise that are not related to body size. And I want to do it when I wake up in the morning, like I feel joy when I do it. And I don't even have that all the time still, you know, there was a long time where I really couldn't do any cardio because it was too triggering. No. What about you? Well, that's a really good answer. I think for me, it would be like just that the path to happiness is thinness. Like, don't you just want to be happy or stuff like that, I guess. Like feeling like Um, your life needs to be on hold until you achieve that. And also just that like being thinner will make you happier. And that has not been the correlation in my life. So no, it very often is not. I think that's a really common And super insidious one, and it's holding a lot of people back from just living their lives. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's bring us up. I realized when I ordered these questions, I picked like a sad one to end on. 
Let's talk about terrible diet messages. Okay, goodbye. No, we will bring it up now with butter for burnt toast. Corinne, last time you were on, you had, I mean, you've like set a very high bar for yourself. I know. I was actually struggling a little bit because I don't think I can really live up to that. I don't think anyone ever um, can, so you can release yourself from that pressure. Okay. My endorsement is slightly related to what you were just saying, which is sometimes, you know, I'm just living my life and I get a feeling in my body of like, I want to do something other than like walk the dog and garden, which are like my usual exercise activities. I subscribe to a lot of sub stacks, but one of my favorite is She's a Beast, oh, yeah. which is Casey Johnson's newsletter about like being strong and lifting weights. And she recently started a couch to barbell program called Liftoff. And so I decided that I would just like look into it. Mm-hmm. I don't think I have a good track record with like finishing programs or following programs, but it's kind of divided into like three phases. And the first phase requires only like your house and a broomstick. And there's a YouTube video that you can follow along with. And it takes less than 15 minutes, which is like, oh my gosh, incredible. And you just do like, I I don't know, it's like six exercises, maybe. And they're all like, probably stuff you've done before. And I just like that it, yeah, I love that it starts off, like, so simply. And, like, I don't know if I'll make it to phase two, but Fair. I've you done don't need phase to. one. You're enjoying phase one. That's awesome. Yeah. And I've done it, like, a, six times or something. I just think it's great. So I want to just recommend that program and also Casey's newsletter, which is, like, about fitnessy stuff. But she definitely has, like, a anti-diet yeah, lens. very fat, positive, strong critiques of fitness culture, which are really well done. I kind of want to do this too now. You're influencing me. This looks great. Well, let me know if you do. I will. I am like endlessly in physical therapy, as mm. people know, because of my back and my ankle. And I'm like kind of trying to get out now, <laughs> but I can't. Yeah. The other week I was like, I feel like I'm done. And she was like, no, I feel like you're in that place where you're no longer in active pain, but if you leave, you will re-injure yourself immediately. And I was like, touche. Okay, we will, we will keep going. But I am getting bored. Like for a while, I was like, you know, an A student with physical therapy and would like do my exercises every morning. And now I'm like, I'm just losing interest. I feel like I need a new program. So I'm going to check this out. Yeah, it's really so fun and easy to just, like, follow a YouTube video. Yeah. Like, I just put it on and, like, put it on silent and listen to a podcast while I'm, like, waving my little burn stick around. So I am recommending an absurdly large water jug. A while back, I posted on Instagram that so I get migraines and I loosely tie getting migraines to the days when I drink only Diet Coke. This is not a criticism of Diet Coke. It's necessary to my well-being. But I should drink water, too, you know, (laughs) to be a person. And sometime I want to do a a reported piece on hydration culture. It's a whole thing, for sure. However, I do need to drink water. And I asked for recommendations. And a couple people recommended this. It is the Stanley Go Ice Flow 64-ounce stainless steel flip straw jug. The link is in the outline if you want to check it out, Corinne. It's... A beast. It's enormous. Okay. Is 64 ounces a gallon? It is a gallon. Yes. <laughs> okay. I also have a gallon water jug. Um, This is maybe why we were destined to be friends. Yours looks 
really good, though. I appreciate the size, but I have never once, I've had it for a couple weeks now, I have never once drunk 64 ounces in one day. Like, that's just, I cannot drink that much water in a day. Like, that's a ridiculous amount of water. But what I love about it is it is so well insulated that it stays cold all day long because I do not like drinking tepid water that is not interesting to me. And I mean, I tested it out. It was 90 degrees here all weekend. We were out at the pool. I was out gardening the whole day. And I like would fill this thing up in the morning with a bunch of ice cubes and cart it outside with me. And last night at like eight o'clock at night, I was like, Dan, you have to drink this water. It's so cold. (laughs) And he was like, thank you for sharing with me (laughs) that your water is cold. Yeah, do you have to, like, lift it over your head to drink it? No, you don't have to lift it up. No. You, okay. It, it, okay. It is not a barbell workout. Um, you can just hold it up and tilt it a little bit okay. to drink. I have been self-conscious to drink out of it, like, on a Zoom, because I feel like it does look a little, I don't know, it's so preposterous. I want to get, like, their 20-ounce one I feel like might be more for daily use. But this is very useful for like being outside when like I'm out with my kids and like we all need water and I don't have to carry out like multiple water bottles. You know what I mean? It looks sleek too, at least. I have the petal, the light pink. Cool. Well, Corinne, thank you so much for doing this again. This was really fun. Thanks for having me. Do you want to remind people where to find you once again? Oh, sure. You can find me on Instagram at Plus. That's where I spend most of my time. And then my personal Instagram is at SelfieFay. Amazing. We will see you there. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode. You can also leave us a rating or a review. Those will really help folks to discover the episodes. And consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. Until June 30th, it's just $4 per month or $40 for the year. You'll get a ton of cool perks and you'll keep this an ad and sponsor-free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com slash one year sale. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at V underscore Soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by the fantastic Corinne Fay, who runs at Cell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.